Welcome to Crossing the Career Chasm, a new series produced by Princeton's Business Today team. In this series, we talk to executives about how they started their careers and what steps and strategies they used to cross the chasm from an entry-level position to a leadership role today. My name is Waylon. And my name is Jimmy. And in this week's episode, we are speaking to Lisa Skeet Tatum, the founder and CEO of Landit, a personalized career pathing platform created to increase the success and engagement of women in diverse groups in the workplace. The platform offers a turnkey one-size-fits-one solution that enables companies to attract, develop, and retain diverse, high-potential talent. She was a general partner at Cardinal Partners, an early-stage venture capital firm, for over 10 years, and she started off her career at Procter & Gamble after having attended Cornell University and Harvard Business School. We're so excited to welcome Mrs. Tatum as our first guest, and thank you so much for being here. Of course, my pleasure. Could you tell us a little bit about Landit and what inspired you to start it? Absolutely. So I started Landit because I was trying to solve my own personal pain point. So I'm a chemical engineer by training, which means my two boys think I know a little something about math and science. Uh, Worked for Procter & Gamble in engineering, product development, then more on the business side, got recruited away to join a startup. That's when I caught the bug. I was like, this is really great. How do I do this for more people? And someone said, what about venture capital? I'm like, okay, I don't know what that is, but yeah, let's do that. And I thought that was going to be my end all be all. That's what I had worked for and sacrificed for. And I thought that was going to be the pinnacle. And after about a decade, I realized I didn't want to do that anymore. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And everyone expected me to know. And it felt pretty uncomfortable because no one walks around any institution, whether it's academic or for-profit or nonprofit, saying, I'm not sure what to do. or I'm not sure what my next move is. Because for many of us, there's a social cost to doing so. So we suffer in silence. We, we don't necessarily reach out. We don't even know what our ask is. And I thought I was the only one. And at that time, I was accepted as a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute. You have to have a project you think is going to change the world. And I realized that it was me. That if I could knit together know-how and access and pathing and a trusted environment, that we could literally unlock human potential. And so that's what I set out to do because I could no longer live with the status quo of people trying to achieve success, but not knowing where to start, not knowing what they didn't know. And even if they did, they didn't have the access. So what Landa does and what we set out to do is redefine how career success is achieved and accessed. So we take everything that would be reserved for the top of the pyramid and most of us don't make it to the top of the pyramid. We knit it together and kind of this one size fits one. It almost as if you had your own virtual concierge. So each person can own and drive their career, but we surround them with the tools and the resources and the coaching that they need. And it's portable. So say you started while you were, you know, maybe an undergrad and then you went to one company and another land, it would be there because we know that when people don't succeed in the workplace, it's not because they're not capable, it's because they don't have the access to succeed. So I'm very famous for saying we're on a quest for world domination, right? So how do you give everyone a shot at success and enable organizations to invest more fruitfully and more intentionally in the success of everyone, not just the chosen few. 
So we would like to talk a little bit about your school experience and what was the transition like from high school to college and what was the most important resources that helped you become successful during these years? Sure. So I could not wait to get to college. I fell in love with Cornell the moment I set foot on campus. Now, of course, it was like in the spring and it was balmy and it was beautiful. And so I studied chemical engineering. So that means there was a little bit of a workload there. Uh, I had my first major hiccup my first semester with physics. Uh, let's just say my grade was so bad, I was really questioning my whole existence in the universe. Fortunately, I was more chemical than physics. And it's just about that lesson of bouncing back, right? When you maybe encounter something or a failure that's new to you, how you have to get yourself up, you know, brush yourself off and move forward or bounce forward, I like to say. Um, I developed great relationships with professors. I tell even my kids, whether it's high school or college or grad school, or even in the workplace, the importance of building and staying connected uh, with either your teachers or uh, faculty and staff. I think of, you know, they served as references. They helped me navigate. Again, I was from Newark, New Jersey. There were so many things I didn't know. Uh, I also took advantage of everything. I am a voracious consumer of knowledge. So I went to as many lectures. I tried you know, different courses. I got involved with clubs. From my perspective, I had to work. I didn't have a choice. So I had to get creative. So I did things where, of course, I could sustain myself, but also fed into what was important to me. So I ran what was known at the time as the Macintosh Computer Lab, who says that anymore, but that's what it was called. Uh, I managed the peer-wide tutoring program because I've always been mission-driven. And I worked in the office of the National Society of Black Engineers. So I said, if I'm gonna work, I'm gonna do things that are in line with either my interests or my passion. Uh, but I made sure that I stayed connected, even though we were solving and writing out every formula before we had to solve the prelim. And so by the time I left Cornell, I had felt, I wish I'd had more time, but I had taken advantage of as many things as possible. I had formed as many relationships as I possibly could so that by the time I graduated, I had a path, at least so I thought. So uh, I loved it. I was cold, but I loved it. So you started off your career at Procter & Gamble. What was it like navigating a company of that history and size as your first job out of college? Yeah, so fortunately, I was a co-op student at P&G. So I, again, started in a lab working on Citrus Hill. Then I went and I worked in a plant working on Tide. And so the great thing about P&G and why so many people start companies like that is you get an amazing onboarding and training program. And I would say one of the most valuable lessons of my life happened when I was going from Cornell to P&G. I was convinced that I was gonna stay an extra year at Cornell, take intensive Japanese, and then I wanted to move to Japan. And that was gonna be my goal. And that's how I was gonna navigate. And to this day, um, I still think this woman who I would consider my sponsor, and we can certainly talk about it, who pulled me aside and said, Lisa, your first job out of college, your first assignment is your most important because it's gonna set the stage for what comes, what adjectives are associated with your name, and how people are or aren't gonna support you. So she pulled me aside and she said, I do not recommend you doing going to Japan because if you do, you're gonna fail. And I was like, well, what do you mean I'm gonna fail? I don't fail. And she said, you don't have any networks. 
you don't really understand the organization. And I don't think that's a good idea. However, if that's where you want to go, I'm going to help you get there. And these are the things you have to do. So she talked to me about making sure you say yes to almost anything that comes your way, even if you're scared, which I had no problem to doing because I'm a daredevil. You, know, you give 110%, which I knew I would do because that's just kind of how I'm wired. But also that you, um, you put yourself out there for risk and that you cultivate feedback. I think so many of us are afraid to, to ask people for you know, feedback or their perspective. But if you don't know what you have to learn, then you have no way to propel yourself forward. So this cultivating of your skill and cultivating a feedback in your network, I learned really early on. And so then after I had been there full-time for two years, they had acquired uh, CoverGirl and Max Factor. And I really wanted to work there. And I realized that when I went to advocate for it, because I had taken her advice in terms of my onboarding and delivering and uh, developing relationships and making sure that the words associated with me were things like excellence and she'll get it done. And she says, yes, et cetera that even though I had only been there two years, they allowed me to go, <coughs> pardon me, and work in Europe and go over for a company they had just acquired. So even though it was big, your success many times is local. So you have to think about early on, how do you become a sponge? How do you make sure that you are delivering for your team? And that was my mindset. And just saying, I'm going to be open to anything that comes my way, as opposed to so many times we say, oh, I don't have the experience or, you know, I'm not sure what I'm doing. Organizations don't want you to fail, right? So you wouldn't be there if you didn't have the raw goods. The question is, how do you develop them? So that was my approach. So you mentioned that you were able to go to Europe as part of your job. What was that like? It was awesome. It was really awesome. I spent my time in Dreieck, Germany. Uh, also in Paris and a little bit of Milan because that's where the prestige fragrance was. And I sure as heck did not know what I was doing, but I knew what I was passionate about and I had incredible grit. So it's like, okay, I'm just going to power through. But one thing if people haven't developed the skill is you have to learn to ask questions. You have to learn to ask for help. And I think so, and I've coached so many people who they just want to figure it out on their own. And one, you're going to go slower to, you know, great minds create great things. And so even though I was out of my comfort zone, I was so energized and so passionate about what I was doing that I was going to figure it out. And when I went and asked someone for their advice or their input, when I think about building your board, I'd say, well, who else should I talk to? And so you start to develop not necessarily just the knowledge, but how to ask the right questions. And that's something even I look for in people we hire, uh, which is why I love, you know, one of your soon-to-be alums, because even though she interned with us as a freshman, her ability to ask the five whys, I was like, that is someone, <laughs> that's a winner that I want to back. And so that's a really important skill, I'd say, to develop and what allowed me to, to navigate, even though it was a new company and I was very young and I was in, you know, a series of countries going back and forth. But it was great. One of the best uh, career times of my life, for sure. One of the features Landit provides is helping individuals to build and refine their personal brand. What are the most important components of a personal brand? And how did you hone in on these during your own career? 
So personal brand is one of those things that we neglect the most when we think about our career and the opportunities that are open to us. It accounts for 30% of what it takes to be successful. Most of us don't know it, don't know the mistakes we're making, and you better believe it matters. So the way we define it is what do people say and think about you that makes them want you in the room? That they're going to remove, you know, obstacles and boulders to make sure that you have a seat at the table. Uh, what it's not about is bragging and fame. And people don't realize that whether you like it or not, there is a brand associated with you. So are you going to cultivate it or are you just going to let it happen? Uh, my kids always laugh because since they were little, they're like, mom, should I work on my personal brand? So they get such a kick out of it. But it's true. Uh, the key components, I would say, are things like... Um, you know, gravitas, which is how do you present yourself? Like, are, are you kind of, it's okay to be, you know, reserved or some people outgoing. It's not about that. It is when you present yourself, are you credible? It's about how do you communicate? Are you straightforward? Do you, you know, open up by kind of setting the table, if you will, so people know what it's about? It is, uh, do you not use credibility impacting words like I think, or I may be new or just, all of those things that, you know, impact your credibility before you start speaking. But it's also about things like keeping track of your accomplishments. So when people or a sponsor wants to help, you can arm them with information or you keep a track to make sure you're working on the most important things. It's about knowing your strengths and also where you may need to focus. It's about being consistent with your uh, presence online and offline, right? Some people have very different personas uh, you know, on social media than they do you know, live and in person and the two are related. And so if you think about 30% of your success, the opportunities you will have, the learning you will have are based on what people perceive you as and how you present yourself, it is something that we all should pay attention to. And oh, by the way, if you don't have a strong personal brand, you're not going to be able to attract a mentor. You're not going to be able to attract a sponsor because they're not going to spend their hard-earned social and political capital on someone they don't believe is going to deliver. So whether you are, you know, 12 or 20 or more mature, it is a key component of anyone's success equation. Yeah, that's super interesting. I, I feel like I never really think about that or my personal brand, but that's something I'll definitely keep in mind. Mm. Um, you often attribute your success to your board of advisors, and you've mentioned them a couple of times. Um, what role did your coaches play in your career and like why were they so important? Yeah, so I'll answer that in two ways. So one, how important it is for everyone to have a board of advisors. You know, no one, not even your mother or your best friend wants you to come up and say, you know, you know, will you be my mentor? Because it's creepy and it's heavy and you normally don't ask. But this notion of making sure that you have people in five seats and then the coach would be the six. So the mentor, which is someone who's your career strategist your sponsor, which is the most important one. This is your personal rainmaker, if you will. Your point expert, someone who has more knowledge than you do and they're willing to share it. Uh, your connector, someone who knows everyone. Both of my kids are very connected. They seem to know the world. Sometimes I find that they're pulling things in for me. But the coach is one of the best kept secrets because it is the difference maker in terms of accelerating your time to goal 
Think of it as a trusted resource that has pattern recognition and their only goal is your success. So they're going to help you define and have helped me define. And those, if you think about any successful um, business person or nonprofit leader, most of them have a coach at some point in their career because they help you define what you want to achieve. They'll help you really understand where you are now versus where you're trying to go. Maybe frame up some of the options because sometimes when you're running so hard, you forget to pick up your head and see exactly where you are. But then it's about action. What are the choices you're going to make? Because you can do anything, but you can't do everything. And so if you think about, you know, coaches as that secret sauce, you know, the time to get is not kind of when you're in crisis, which I think some people associate it with. It's more about what is your success trajectory and who's going to be a catalyst for that. And so that's why it was such an important component of offering it to Landit because, or to our members, because most people are like, well, one, I didn't know I needed one. Two, I wouldn't even know where to find one. And then if I did, how do I know who the good ones are? So I personally seen the power of how it can help someone navigate. But I think the earlier you get in your career, the difference it's gonna make in terms of your acceleration curve, hands down, no question. For kids just starting in college, where do you think they should look for their board of advisors first? Mm -hmm. So everyone probably has someone, they just haven't categorized them. So it could be a friend. Uh, it could be maybe someone who's, you know, maybe an upperclassman. It could be a faculty member or staff. I mean, I remember when I was at Cornell and as I mentioned, I had to work two jobs. I was like, oh my gosh, can I even afford to get out of Cornell? And I remember, you know, reaching out to some of the folks in the engineering career office and how they helped me to navigate. And Lisa, did you consider, um, you know, being a co-op? I didn't know what a co-op student was way back when. And so it's not as if it has to be this huge grandiose person. It could just be people in your network. Uh, those of you who know, my first member of my board was my mom, right? Because my mom was my advocate when people were prepared to, to underestimate uh, where we were based on, you know, our origins or, or our background. And so it's just asking yourself, like, you know, who's the first person you think to call when you have a question or something goes right or something goes wrong? Who is it that you can reach out to that can make a call on your behalf? And so you start to cultivate. Most mere mortals are not born with a full blown board of advisors. It's something you cultivate over time, but it has to be a key ingredient because, you know, skills are not enough. They just are not enough. You will not go as far or achieve as much as you would desire if you don't build that support team around you. So start with friends or upperclassmen or maybe people that you may be in organizations with. Don't forget to look maybe people who are more junior. I absolutely believe in reverse mentoring. You can learn something from everyone and anyone. So start small, start local, and then grow from there. Yeah, for sure. Um, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about the startup culture. Mm. Um, what were some challenges you faced as kind of a female founder and what advice would you give to young female entrepreneurs in the space? So being an entrepreneur is just hard, period. In fact, I don't trust people who say, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. 
because you have to be driven by something much bigger, something that's going to propel you to run through fire where you can no longer live with the status quo. So it's hard. And so the main challenges are one, prioritization, hiring. If any CEO doesn't tell you or founder that that's a key component, they're not telling the truth. And then scaling. Uh, there's so many things that you can do, kind of this hyper-prioritization, so you're moving towards milestones. I say what's particularly challenging for women and certainly for female founders of color is raising capital. Less than 0.2% are able to raise, you know, over you know, a million dollars. In fact, Vanity Fair did a spread. There were 27 women of color around the globe at the time that had raised over a million dollars it's beyond incredulous. I mean, it's just a terrible stat and it's all again about access. So being able to raise the money in order to scale, in order to bring products and services that, that serve not just a small population, but massive opportunity has certainly been, been a challenge, but a tide that is starting to change, but it absolutely is still quite a barrier to many entrepreneurs um, realizing the dreams and the success and bringing the products and services to market that you know populations need. Throughout your career, have you seen the startup space become more inclusive of women founders? And in what specific ways does it really still need to grow? The good thing about the current environment is that it's finally part of the narrative. Any winning or woke organization now realizes the missed opportunity, right? We know that in addition to being the right thing to do, there's an economic and competitive imperative to organizations doing so. Better outcomes, more creative, proximate to who they serve. What I am seeing and what I'm encouraged about is most entrepreneurs are glass half full is that now there are more sources of funding than ever before. So you have female focus, you have um, funds and corporations that are focused on accelerated programs for women and, and people of color. You have special corporate biz dev initiatives around that. I also think the education has changed because many times when people think about, let's just say the tech industry, they think you're only technical uh, in order to be in tech, not realizing that all the same functions exist, you know, marketing, communications, uh, whatever it may be. And so I think it's an intentionality about it that is different. Um, also holding people accountable, you know, stakeholders are, are watching, people are looking up and down the organization to see if it's diverse, they're looking at boards, they're looking at sourcing, and they are voting with their dollars and with their support. And I don't believe, you know, 10 years ago, you had that widespread wokeness, if you will. And when you have diverse people and power making decisions, that in itself opens up more opportunity for diversity of all kinds, of founders, of um, VCs, of people working in the industry. So you have to have accountability, you have to have visibility. And I would say if there's a silver lining out of all of the suffering and unrest and loss in the past, call it year and a half, it's been the bright light that has uh, been shown on this and people stepping up, organizations stepping up in those different ways. So I'm more optimistic, but we are just at the beginning and we can't allow people to fatigue, right? We have to stay on it and make sure that it's part of the fabric, not something that we put kind of over there in a box. Yeah, for sure. And someone, as someone who's pretty interested in getting in the space, that's 
definitely something that's insightful and I'll take into account. Um, as we start to wrap up the podcast, what is one piece of advice if they get, if our listeners get anything from this podcast that you would like to give to them? One piece of advice, only one, you know, entrepreneurs can't stick to one. So uh, I would say take risk. And most people don't focus on that, but whether it is take a risk to reach out and form a relationship, take a risk to try something you haven't done before, you know, take a risk for an opportunity or to seek, you know, internship, something out of your comfort zone. Even if you don't think you have everything at a place like this, you have everything you need to create the opportunities that you want. So we tend to be risk averse, right? We think of it as a hazard when it's really about being ready and getting out of your comfort zone. Because if you're kind of cruising, nothing good is going to happen when you're on autopilot. Nothing great happens when you're out there in the cray-cray zone either. So you are striving for this sense of discomfort. That's where your learning and your sponsorship and your opportunity and your compensation and hopefully your fulfillment will happen. Lisa, I really wanted to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. It's been a real pleasure to be able to hear about your experiences and your career. And I know that our listeners are really looking forward to be able to employ the ideas that you've given us today and really make a positive impact on their own personal brand and their own career moving forward. Thank you all so much. This was great. And I was, uh, it was a pleasure and honor to be a part. And that wraps up our first episode of Crossing the Career Chasm. My name is Waylon. And my name is Jimmy. And we hope that you enjoyed learning about how to build your own personal board of advisors and brand to advance your career as much as we did. Tune into our next episode soon. Thank you.